right, guys. So I've got a real special guest for us today. We've got Eric Bouguera. He is uh, a prescript educator. I will not dive in too deep. I'll allow Eric to say a little bit more about himself, but we've got him on here because he's a really smart guy. So Eric, if you could tell us, for those who don't know who you are, a little bit about yourself. I just want to end it right there. Like, I, <laughs> my name is Eric Vergara, and I'm a really smart guy. No, we, uh, the context that you and I have met each other is probably the strongest way that people recognize me as well, which is through Prescript. Um, most of my online presence currently uh, is through the lens of some form of personal training and or personal training education. So that's probably the best way to describe me or describe my qualifications or my, my person right now. So uh, I've got my master's degree in kinesiology. Uh, I have a second undergrad in nutritional sciences. I've been a personal trainer for probably about 13 years now. Um, in the last probably three to four years, I've been, like I said, getting more and more heavily involved, especially in the online space of things. Uh, probably more specifically in trainer education is what I'll say. We, we launched the Prescript Hypertrophy course, which is what my first sort of foray into a legitimized, like actual full-on course. But I've been involved with Prescript for a number of years now, kind of being the middleman for all the different courses, all the different personalities, being a gen general knowledge translator. And I think that's actually probably if I were to, you and I were riffing on titles prior, uh, prior to hitting record, if I were to give myself a title, we'll just call myself almost like a universal translator. So I don't know, hopefully that helps people, online coach, educator, whatever hat you want me to wear. I was going to even throw in, because you do like some like fitness writing too right oh god yeah that okay if we let's just make it easy and be like the things that i get paid for uh online personal training uh technically yeah i'm a, i'm a fitness writer which is a really weird like evolution of my career that i didn't necessarily see coming but genuinely i am a contracted writer for barbend and here and there for another company called breaking muscle that's kind of under the same umbrella i've been doing that actually for a number of years as well which still seems very surreal to be paid for fitness writing um, and then obviously the, the educational prong or the more educational prong being prescript. So yeah, those would probably be the three legs of my current, uh, revenue, my current job, if you want to call it that. Cool. All right. So I, I mean, I've obviously seen you in like labs and, uh, like the collective and stuff like that, but I most recently took your hypertrophy course. So now you're the hypertrophy guy in my mind. Um, what is hypertrophy for people who wouldn't know what that even is? So hypertrophy is in the, the smallest and most concise way. It's, it's muscular growth. Um, our good friend Killian Hamilton likes to, you know, minimize it's important because it's a byproduct of basically all training, but it kind of, it's kind of true. Like your muscle is going to adapt to whatever you throw at it. That's probably one of the, the easiest ways to sort of parse out what all of training is, is how is your body going to adapt to a specific trading style? Hypertrophy is your, or hypertrophy training, if we want to get a little more detailed on it, is the way that you're going to design any sort of training program to maximize the amount of muscle growth that you can have. It can land on a continuum. It's the byproduct of all training because your training is a stimulus that is greater than it, than just doing nothing or whatever you used to do prior. So in doing so, so there's going to be some adaptation. Usually hypertrophy is a byproduct of almost everything because it's kind of necessary for continued strength, continued growth, continued almost anything is just having more of you, more contractile tissue is probably a benefit, but long and short of it is hypertrophy is effectively muscular growth. Right. 
And so why should most clients or trainers care about hypertrophy? It's especially for new clients. It's kind of a blunt forced object that, that raises their, their just foundation to be able to actually pursue almost anything to a much more meaningful and expedient way. So if we take a client or anybody really like, yeah, take my mother, like zero training experience, old farm girl, but has since long since retired and just sort of slowly wasting away. She could tell me she wants to run a marathon and I'd be like, mom, we need to put muscle on your body first because you're going to just start ramming into your joints at all times, no matter what you're about to take on. It could be a strength training routine, could be the, the running that I was sort of teasing out. Regardless, for almost anybody's goal, it doesn't really matter what direction it's ultimately going to go into. Without a foundation of muscle, of contractile tissue to actually manipulate in the actual uh, pursuit of said goal, they're in for a bad time. And that's something over the course of my, uh, if we didn't mention it, I had about 10 years. I've been a personal trainer for 13. I know we said that, but I was in person exclusively for about 10 of those. That was one of the biggest uh, themes that I saw recurring over and over and over was people will come to you with whatever goal they're going to state. But for whatever reason, unless I just front loaded that with some form of meaningful hypertrophy training, putting something on their frame, uh, helping rebody composition them just a little bit, it's way, way harder. Just the, whatever they walked in with, there's not enough there most of the time. And in saying that, it's also, again, as a by it being a byproduct of almost any style of effective training, anything with any kind of intensity, it's also very easy. It's very pliable to apply to almost anybody because it doesn't have to look necessarily any one way. I think people often look at hypertrophy or hypertrophy training under the lens of exclusively bodybuilding, which is a iteration of it. It may be the most a uh, specific iteration of it, but it doesn't need to be that specific to see meaningful progress. So it's very simple to apply to almost everybody. You simply just do the thing. You lift weights, you eat food, and you grow and you recover. And it's pliable enough that it can actually be given to almost every single client, almost universal, regardless of their experience level or the capabilities to help build their baseline. What about the ones that are like, well, I don't want to get too bulky? That's a fun one because like, no, let me let me pump the brakes on that one because like it's a, it's a very easy it's a it's a common it's a common concern for clients and it's a common trainerese. Let's just get together and kind of shit on this myth. Like you know what this fucking person said? Do you believe this shit? I've been trying to get huge for ten years of my life and I'm still the smallest small and ever small. It's all from the perspective of the person, right? Like if you have a client that is not experienced in the gym, they've never really pursued their goals. They may not know from the physiological standpoint that say we're taking off the bat in terms of this question or this comment. They may not know literally how hard it actually is to gain a meaningfully, uh, meaningful and appreciable size, like how long it's going to take, the actual intensity they need to train with, the nutritional and recovery considerations. They don't know that. However, we are all well aware of the newbie gains and how actually, relatively speaking, it easier it is to gain things when you're first starting. Pair that with the perspective of an individual. Um, I've been trying to get to, to com complete that uh, cliche statement. I've been trying to get huge for my entire life and I didn't accidentally walk into anything. Um, that's from my vision of what huge is. I may already be huge in the perspective of someone that has never lifted weights before or is already trepidatious about the process of building muscle, period. It could come down to culturally or even just time period wise, what they view as the, as the aesthetic that they're driving towards. So 
to pump the brakes on just what we commonly would just everybody jumps in and shits on that statement because you know it's harder than just accidentally catching some gains it's almost you have to look at it through the perspective of that person now with that in mind the trump card i usually play there is like hey you got to eat so that's the one thing that barring like getting to the discussion of eating disorders or anything like in a specialized population consider consideration kind of the trump card is all right we're gonna train real hard and your body's gonna start adapting um, if we start seeing things go a little bit too down the rabbit hole for you, a little bit too, you're getting too huge, fuck yeah, too huge. Uh, we can pull back some of your calories or we can slow the roll because what happens is when we pull back that stimulus, your body will slowly revert. You just sort of start to explain things in a way that like accounts for their genuine perspective on it and kind of playing the cards on physiology that you're acutely aware of as the human that has actively been trying to get huge, all the the difficulty of consistently eating enough, getting enough protein, sleeping enough, training with regularity, but not too much. All those pitfalls that you as the more experienced trainer run into at all times, just lay them out just a little bit in a way that is like communicated that they'll actually absorb it, right? Yeah. And for those people that are trying to become more toned, but that don't want to get too bulky, what would you, what would you say to them? Dude, I say toned. I love that word. I love every word that a client's going to say because I'm not a three-year-old. Like, I understand synonyms. Everybody listening to the sound of my voice, this is probably going to be something I write about soon because it just pops in my head now, but does anyone know what a fucking synonym is? I'm going to assume you're either bleeping me or I'm allowed to swear because you haven't reacted once yet. But does anyone know what a synonym is? It's a word that is similar enough in terms of the actual definition to another word that they can be used effectively interchangeably. Unless that's another word and I just fuck that up. But either way, you understand my point. You say toned. I say like muscular development. I say hyper. Who cares? We're not three. We understand that words can mean the same thing. And it has a different maybe uh, relevance to someone's life. But that's another thing. This is basically where this this every, every question is probably going to come back to me just like knocking on the, the, the avatar of some trainer that wants to lord their intelligence over their new client. But who cares if they, they say toned? Are you not intelligent enough to know exactly what they mean? If I were to say, we're going to yeah, toning is not a thing. Well, then fuck this guy. I'm not giving money to this person. <laughs> so they don't believe my goal is real. Like, no, like I know exactly what you're saying. So I'm, I'm chill with that word. Yeah. The, uh, the, I honestly almost take more exception to the word bulk because bulk is more easily misconstrued as I'm going to get a bunch of fat as well. And I'm like, nah, that's not our goal, right? Yeah. So when, when somebody is saying tone, um, what, what I hear is they want to improve the ratio between the amount of fat mass they have and the amount of muscle mass that they have. Yeah. It's, it's body composition related for, and, and it's a, it's a very uh, important distinction to make for the average person because a lot of people aren't necessarily, uh, they're a, it's two pronged answer here, a two pronged statement. They're not as addicted to hypertrophy or getting bigger like I might be where it's also tied to a number on the scale and what I mean by that is I want to get I want to get toned but I also want larger number on scale I actually am pursuing that whereas most people when they say they want to get toned if it's a client speaking that way they want that number on the scale to stay completely the same and they as you were referring to what we could call it is they want to optimize their body composition Another phrase that may not even land with a client, which is why toning, there you go. Be the universal translator for your client. Totally. And so what do you think holds most people back from achieving 
hypertrophy? I think it goes to what you just said. I don't think it's necessarily that they don't achieve it unless the the body composition kind of masks a lot of the progress that they'll make. And I think a common pitfall, and this is sort of calling back my early experience as a trainer, we got handed this sort of format, this this playbook for how you should be programming people for, say, the first year uh, of their training. And if it's any newbie, it doesn't really matter what you do. They're going to see gains. They're going to see progress. So having some kind of a template, I'm not necessarily against that for super new trainers that, that haven't got a ton of experience just yet, but they should be given the opportunity to grow beyond that. So with that in mind, you know, you'd go through your initial training programming and almost regardless of their starting point, they're going to start to see some muscular development. However, depending on their body fat percentage and their overall size, it may be kind of masked. And that goes back to uh, the, the frame of reference we had with, I would like to tone being, I would like to improve my body composition and have the number on the scale stay relatively the same. Those are the, the cases that are a little bit harder to navigate because as you start to train, the byproduct of training in a lot of ways is muscular development. If that person already has a larger than they'd like uh, body fat percentage and they're trying to actively bring that down, but then you build tissue underneath it as well. That's a lot of, uh, a lot of the time, the visual of bulkiness, like I don't want to get too big. That's what a lot of young client or young training age clients or inexperienced clients, they'll see that and then they'll freak out. That's oftentimes in my experience, the thing that is the most detrimental to them is the early newbie gains underneath the body composition that they're also trying to improve. So in those ways, it's, again, it comes down to like the conversation of it all, or just depending on if you're, if you're able to lay it out clear enough for them. And this is something that's very important for her trainers to realize the dynamic between coach and client is one of authority. It's one of, of, of leadership, if that makes sense. Like if I'm coming to you as a, as a trainer, I'm handing you the keys. I'm going to presume that you know what you're doing. I need you to guide me through this process. I think a lot of times that gets taken for granted and the like a full clear image of like, okay, this is day one. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the result. Here's day three months, six months, one year, 18 months, two years, whatever length of time you want to map up, map out for them. Clearly, literally getting ahead of it and telling them this is how the training will go. This is the expected results. This is how your body composition or your body may look or feel in this period of time. We're aware of it. We're ahead of it. And it's the trade-off to get you to where you ultimately want to be. So it's a little bit more of a mixed bag challenge in that respect. But I think transparency and not necessarily leaning into just that authoritative position where just do what I say because I know this is going to go well, giving them as much information about the process, letting them know this is exactly how it's going to go is really important in that respect. Totally. So what do you think are, I mean, obviously you have a whole course on this. But if you could give us just a handful, like what are some of the best practices to achieving some sort of hypertrophy? Trying real hard. The, the ones that are probably resonating right now for you specifically, because I know you just took the exam. It's like, what is, what are the key like tenets that I presented? Like there's going to be the ones that are more like exercise principles, like the ones that are in your textbooks. And then there's the ones that as, as I would sort of morph them into my own terminology or morph them into my own perspectives, but quality of movement, intensity of effort, and then the longevity of the applied stimulus. So quality of movement being, if I give you a weight and I tell you to execute a certain exercise, uh, how bang on is your technique rep over rep, or do you see some crazy amount of like biomechanical or technical breakdown 
the level of which means like the target muscle is probably not getting a tremendous stimulus. And the example I gave in the course, a lot of the times will be like a dumbbell biceps curl because it sounds so straightforward, but people just suck myself included. Like the reason why it's the example is because I sucked at it for so long, but it's such a simple visual exercise where you just flex your arm, but how much sway is there? How much movement of your shoulder into extension or flexion is there to like accommodate as you get tired? Uh, things that are going to take direct tension off of that muscle and then have you doing a tremendous amount of perceived work, but the actual direct stimulus to that muscle is getting shittier and shittier over the course of the set. So quality of movement is going to be a huge one, making sure that you're getting repeatable effort over time, but also getting to the highest quality movement pattern, like as it should be as fast as you possibly can. That's going to save you a ton of time up front and make sure that you're actually seeing predictable results. Intensity of effort must be paired with that. There's a growing body of research. Can't believe I just said that. Uh, you have to try hard to see maximal muscle growth, but to temper that statement, you don't have to try uh, nosebleed level of failure on every single set you've ever performed to see tremendous progress. And I think that's something that gets lost in the sauce. Uh, there's this like sort of grappling match between how many reps in reserve can you have that will somehow be equivalent to basically going to failure with the closer you get to failure being probably a little bit more beneficial because of maximal motor unit recruitment, maximal muscle tissue involvement in actually moving that weight, that therefore it being stimulated. None of that was really a controversial statement. The harder you try, probably the more results you'll, you'll see. That makes sense. But how far from failure can I be and still see tremendous appreciable gains? Well, pretty far, like two, three, some people say five. But the idea here is not conflating or confusing the amount of progress you might see on an individual muscle if you take it pretty much to failure versus if you stay three to five away. This is also a non-controversial statement, but you should probably temper your expectations if you're three to five reps in reserve. You'll still see a huge amount of progress, especially if you're just starting. But the more experience you gain, that intensity of effort, similar to your quality of movement, needs to get better and better. Once those two things mesh together and you have high quality of movement, very repeatable repetitions that look the same and you're staying constant tension on the targeted muscle and you're able to get really close to failure each time, how long can you keep that stimulus applied? That's going to be a huge predictor on your net forward progress of the entire program of all your muscular development. So you're trying to get within a strike zone of effectiveness of your technique, of how high intensity effort you can actually accomplish per set, and then just stay in that sweet spot for as long as you possibly can until either the exercise or your just interest in the in the programming starts to wane and then you can swap some stuff and at the end of the day longevity of the applied stimulus is not necessarily the same exercise even though there is benefits to staying with the same exercise for a long period of time it's how long can you just train effectively because net gain of muscle tissue is a lifelong venture if you're not just trying to simply tone if you're trying to get huge, huge, if you're trying to get jacked, if you're trying to gain actual like size to your body, like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds over the course of your life, that's a thing that you kind of want to hit that sweet spot and stay there for a long period of time. We're talking decades and you have to get the food right, you have to get the recovery right, all the other moving parts. So those are the two to three like majors that people need to be aware of. Um, whether or not you are able to like withstand that for an extended period of time, you get a little bit more of a wiggle room in my perspective, getting people there. There is methods. Um, the, the thing that people miss probably is the quality of movement and 
accounting for those intangibles. What is preventing the highest quality movement? Do you have any aches, pains, any joint issues, any stability issues, any imbalances that might be getting in the way? Because I think a lot of people look through the singular lens of either strength, hypertrophy, cardio training for your listeners that might actually run or do some fun cardio stuff. They look at everything through a vacuum of that one adaptation. When the reality is a ton of those things are inter not interchangeable, sorry, but they, they, they cross pollinate strength helps hypertrophy, hypertrophy helps strength. Having a gas tank helps your hypertrophy training and so on and so forth. But in order to have the best quality of movement, you can't leave certain things behind unless you're just going to strap yourself to a machine and accept all kinds of limitations to your movement patterns in the future. So funneling people towards being the most competent, useful person in the, in the weight room is humanly possible. That's kind of like the, the major wild card that I see for a lot of people trying to train is do they front end improvements in the quality of the individual exercise, but also improvements in the movement capabilities of the human. Can you get into the overhead position? Can you stand on one foot and not die? Do you have mobility, stability, strength, hashtag prescript, the whole thing. Okay. That was very thorough breakdown. Um, I wanted to, to jump back to maybe just specifically quality of movement. Um, because I think that like under that subcategory, you're also kind of, um, putting in there that you want a consistent, it's not that it's, it, it's being executed just well, but you're also executing it in a similar fashion because I could do a split squat that looked, uh, or represented more of a knee dominant, uh, position, uh, so that it would target a bit more of my quads. I could do similar, but slightly longer stride length one time and get a little bit more glute. So how would, uh, would that fall under that category or would you put that somewhere else? Um, and, and how important is that in terms of like, oh, well, one time my foot was three inches forward versus one time my foot was four inches back. Yeah, I think it, it's it's who you ask and how in-depth their goals are, really. Um, I would say that it's the way that I describe it and the way I look at things like intensifiers. Standardization of your stimulus makes it easy to control your progressions. So if I have you doing a split squat or a uh, walking lunge or whatever, with the, as close as we can, same exact stride length, same placement, same everything, that makes it easier for us to have, in whatever way you can, pr a predictability of the outcome. If you are literally just dancing all over the place, your stride length is, is off, rep over rep, you're literally going laterally more on one rep than you are on another. These are small, small changes. Like, it's not like your glute and your quad and your adductor and any other muscle group isn't working during each one of those strides, but it makes the predictability of the outcome slightly less. So when you're getting into like the really refined nitty gritty preparing for stage or like just obsessing over it, because you can have people that are just like, have no, no competitive drive, but they just are really into this stuff. It helps control the predictability and in controlling the predictability of outcomes, it then allows you to have a better ability to do your progressions. So by contrast, let's add in the, uh, example that I gave about intensifiers we'll called like a drop set. If we are doing a, all the, the methods we know about progressive overload, trying to make sure that the amount of stimulus my muscle gets on a workout to workout basis is consistent, despite the fact that I'm getting better. So sit on that for a while. I've gotten better. Therefore the same exact training parameters 
should not give me the same stimulus, but I still need the same stimulus to see progress. If I just dump an intensifier, like a drop set in there at random, how do you control for that degree of stimulus? So when people are just having like, they're having fun in the gym, which is okay. It's legal. You're allowed to have fun. Or just like, I'm going to create a workout to destroy X or Y. And then you dump an intensifier in there. You just threw a complete spike into the predictability of that stimulus on the day. So it's something like if we're going to aim for progressive overload, quality of movement, standardization of each repetition, it gives you the ability for a workout over workout, a progression through your programming to have the most control over your expected outcomes and give you the best ability to have the program have the longest lifespan as well, which is really, really good for, for hypertrophy. Does that matter for someone like me? And to qualify my situation, um, I train for hypertrophy also to not be in pain because as you hit 30 and things start to hurt for some reason, whatever, probably worse at 40 and worse at 50. Um, but my life is pretty chaotic in general and it's a uh, chaos of my own devices. I'm the worst, but I train using basically quality of movement, intensity of effort. Those are the two things that I lead with. And then it's highly, highly variable and everything after that, even to the extent of exercise selection based on what I have. So that doesn't mean I'm going to see no gains whatsoever. And the extent to which I care, I see no difference in my development. The extent to which a high-level bodybuilder that's getting judged based upon certain criteria and certain levels of leanness, grain, blah, 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 they'll probably notice a much greater difference. The average human, it takes uh, some doing. It takes some experience to get to the point where you can have kind of like this open season on exercise selection and your intensity of effort and your quality of movement will still be high enough to deliver enough uh, stimulus to be consistent in your physique at least. But there, it, like I said at the very, very beginning of this long answer, it comes down to who it is, how much they need to be focusing on these details. There's always the most right way, but the magnitude of difference is the thing that I think people need to focus on when they're making the right choice for their training. Right. And like what things, like for some people, it's like if there's a particular redundancy in training and it just makes them just not want to work out anymore, it would be better, they would be better served with a little bit of randomness or chaos in terms of exercise selection, so long as they're executing their exercises properly at an adequate intensity. Would you agree? I 100% agree um, because I think that things can be true but not matter at the same time, or they can be true and circumstantially matter because no one's going to debate, I would never debate that doing the most consistent hard work in your training is probably the best for your long-term progress. But what's better for my long-term progress is not stopping training. And that's true of every client in the history of clients. Uh, and having even the, the old, like the random deload or like three up one down deload, that's a redundant deload. We even talk about that within prescript within our circles too. And there's a rationale for it. Um, but doing things like the deload to make sure that you're kind of just shotgun blasting people's recovery in, in other styles of training even though it may seem like a redundancy, maybe they don't even need it. Well, it still reset their recovery. So it wasn't fatal to their development. It may have slowed it down, maybe, or maybe it covered the bases for when the chaos ensues. Same with hypertrophy. Maybe they didn't need to change the exercise because they still were seeing meaningful progress doing the same exercise 17 weeks in a row. But maybe they were like, you have literally made training not fun for me. And anyone who makes training not fun for me doesn't get my money. Or 
whatever, right? Even if they're not a client, like the, the, I think people lose sight of that a lot, especially when they're trying to learn as much as they can about training. That's the experience side of things coming in to sort of temper what you should be doing with all the information that you have. If people don't enjoy what they're doing, they're not going to do it. So it doesn't me, uh, matter how much more right your advice is if they're not going to do it, period. So that's that's always been my perspective. And it, it's a lived experience as well. And I think a lot of people are afraid to speak to that too. Right. I don't know like how often you just YOLO in training and still have the physique and the, the abilities that you have. But I YOLO all the time. Anytime we travel for prescript, I'm like sick. I'm going to have like four or five straight workouts where it's whatever happens to be at the place we're at. And I'm going to train with people who are there. And we're going to be fucking around talking and I'm, eh, I'll do two hard sets. Okay. It's going to be so far removed from what I normally do. And, uh, no one dies, no one loses all their gains. And it's not something that you do consistently, but it's something that a spike change in your training is not the most fatal thing in the world, especially if it keeps you actually moving forward in the long term of consistency. Right. And, uh, so I guess kind of jumping back to quality of movement, um, when people are thinking about progressions or how they should go about progressing a movement a lot of the times they're like reps or weight and a lot of people will jump up and wait um, and then maybe not notice like small nuances in their quality of movement as they become a bit more like for it for the chest press for example it's like they start chest pressing it's good it's like maybe like they've got a nice little 45 degree angle and everything's good here but the moment it gets a little bit heavier, maybe the hands come in a little bit and the elbows go up a little bit and it's looking a little bit more like this. And um, by the end, they're, you know, benching way heavier, but their chest hasn't developed. Um, how would you how would you tell somebody to kind of they're self monitoring their quality of movement? What would be the safest way to go about progressing to ensure that you are actually continuing to get what you think you're trying to get minus like just going up load just for load's sake yeah it's one of those things where load is a blunt force object to your progress load definitely effectively forces motor recruitment because if it's moving you gotta you gotta bring in as much muscular resources as you possibly can but as you literally just described it goes from being a training device, an exercise designed to contract muscle tissue and just have a specific resistance to challenge it, to a task that your body is trying to accomplish, moving something from point A to point B. And in doing so, it ceases to be just a muscular contraction. It's a full body effort, which may involve loading to structure, which for those listening at home, structure doesn't contract. Structure just is structure. And if it doesn't contract, you're probably not going to grow muscle. So that's a problem. But that's usually what happens in, is the end result is the load starts to get actually in the way of the skilled execution. That skilled execution is what keeps your targeted tissue doing the primary amount of work. And that's how growth is going to you know, be targeted and actually meaningful. So in programming and almost in every explanation, and again, it's, it's, a, it's a training maturity thing. At this stage of my own training, load is, is very much so the last thing that I care about progressing because A... I know how detrimental it can be to the skilled execution if you make too too much of a jump too fast or too frequent of a jump too quickly. But also, it's one of those things where it's got a ceiling. Like, there's a point in time where, like, what, are you just going to keep workout over workout, adding two and a half to five pounds to everything you do? If that's your primary method of progressions, like your first shot at progressions, you're going to run into a ceiling, a hard plateau really quickly. 
Whereas if you manipulate things like sets, repetitions, rest periods, uh, tempo, especially things that are going to improve your quality of movement or things of that nature. And that's actually something that, uh, we'll speak a lot to, uh, biomechanics. Like one of the, the ways that we teach biomechanics is describing as load management. Quality of movement is just saying biomechanics is load management in another, it's a synonym. It's another way of saying that. So if we keep your quality of movement as tight as possible, as high quality as possible, or we're improving it over time, that's another method of load management. Because if you're being super strict with how you execute, you're being as isolative as possible to the tissue. You're only staying within certain ranges of motion and using the actual exercise execution as correctly as possible. You're not calling on your entire body as a, as a task. You're not calling on structure to help you. You're not calling on a lot of other things. So it should limit the load that you can actually perform that exercise with clean execution. That doesn't mean you never had weight. It means that you just need more time for that in isolation series of muscle fibers to actually get strong enough to handle a load increase. So that's kind of the way that I, I view it is the things that I would go for. Usually it's, there's some version of tempo on main exercises that's always uh, uh, applied. And there's usually a higher repetition repetition scheme to start and a relatively high RPE because the effort always needs to be high to kind of predict muscle growth. So like a seven, probably not a seven, usually about an eight RPE to start, 12 to 15 reps on a lot of exercises, not all of them, but a lot of them. And usually at least like structured eccentric control. I'll start pulling back session over session, some of that eccentric control or some of the tempo. I'll start pulling back session over session uh, and not even necessarily week over week at the same time. It could be distinct. I'll pull back some of the repetitions because less repetitions by virtue of the relationship of reps versus weight would infer higher loading. And then eventually you just go full send and be like, all right, RP9, RP10, fucking send it. And then you, you've reached like the end zone where you just sort of hold those parameters there and just keep seeing them see progress. But it's one of those things where very early in training, I introduced that idea where you're trying to be as subjectively difficult until it becomes objectively difficult. Because once it becomes objectively difficult, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room for the subjective. When it gets objectively heavy, making any kind of improvement to your technique is exponentially harder because you are just trying to move a load that maybe you were prepared for in the beginning. So that's kind of the, the methodology and the rationale that I give coaches, that I give my trainees as well as, hey, we can sprint towards the brick wall that is the load plateau, or we can take our time and literally within a series of weeks to months, we'll be there anyways, but that's where you'll live forever and be the most complete version of what that exercise can be. Are you saying that to the guy that's also like trying to bench press the most? Because like there's the, there's the form and technique that would probably be better suited for them because it would allow them to build the tissue over time versus dumping into their structures per se, but they experientially notice that I'm stronger when I dump into my structure. Right. And so you're like, yeah, but that's also like all you've got. Yeah. For me, it's, I respect, we'll use the, the term power building, even though I know people hate titles and things, but you basically, I like, I'm sorry, let's use my own. Let's use the social engineering that I'm trying to do integrated hypertrophy. I love barbells and dumbbells. I do thoroughly enjoy the old barbell squat, the deadlift, and the bench press as a part of even the hypertrophy program, especially if someone enjoys those modalities. It's kind of a trump card. Um, but I also come at it from the perspective of muscle grows when muscle is loaded. So there's certain exercises, the bench press is one of them, where you can load tissue very effectively, but at the same time, there's a give and take of it 
of the exercise itself. There's also going to be a certain degree of structural loading to do the safest, most effective bench press period, because a tissue loaded bench press looks absurd and is probably not going to be that effective anyways. Whereas if you go, and I typically will lean into just powerlifting techniques for bench press, uh, for deadlifts, as well as uh, squats. Although I usually keep people at a high bar for squat because it's the least uh, structurally dependent because there's a middle ground for me where if we're loading tissue uh, for for the goal of hypertrophy, hey, or excuse me, if we're loading structure for the goal of hypertrophy, we're not accomplishing the main goal nearly as effectively, but also it's the the room for error with barbells when you're loading structure for the average person. Some people are YOLO because the idea is to just move the most weight. But if it's within the confines of a hypertrophy program, I'd rather give them the variation that's the easiest to keep loaded on tissue instead of structure so they can get the dose of the exercise that they love and that they want to progress with. But the best version that will keep them away from, say, if we dump into structure on a squat, that's probably going to be into your elbows, into your shoulders from like placing in a low bar position that you don't have mobility for. It's often going to be the SI, which if you aggravate your SI, have fun. That's a garbage situation to be in and takes a while to recover from. So the power lifter in me understands that some people will just be like, I don't care. I'm going to use a squat pattern because a squat pattern will still, even if it's structurally loaded, grow a bunch of tissue but I don't care. I want to push the most weight. Well, okay. That's the sacrifice you're electing to make. You're going to load structure instead. You might have some aches and pains, some inflammation, some bumps and bruises in certain spots because low room for error. If you miss ever so subtly, you've already loaded into your structure. For most people, if they're going to really follow my instructions, it's high bar. It's deadlift is eh, sumo, I guess. If they want to, I'd still just conventional them for like the, the development of their back more than anything else. Uh, and then bench press would just be a bench press, but it'd be tempered with other exercises that are much more tissue developers. Gotcha. Is there anything from like, I don't know, uh, a long-term sort of trend, uh, that you could establish that would, um, degrade somebody's ability to continue to make progress. So, um, like falling testosterone or something like that might, might have somebody's energy levels come down and then maybe their motivation to execute an exercise at similar intensities that they once used to, um, their, or their perception of what was once hard is now impossible. Um, are there things, um, like that or similar to that, that you know, or are aware of, um, and, and are there potential interventions for overcoming that? I think a big blind fuck is it's in the literature. And if you don't understand things, it, it flies in the face of what happens in reality in a lot of cases, but, uh, increases in total volume tends to be associated with better hypertrophy outcomes, uh, in trained populations, as well as in untrained populations, but the trained populations are extremely advanced trained populations. And the length of time that they're doing those interventions is not long enough to really see the the real beatdown effect that higher and higher volumes may have on someone, regardless of how much hypertrophy they're achieving. So this is all to say early in training, volume is a very effective tool. It's like throwing shit at the wall and something sticks. Like the original client we we're talking about, like, I, I believe I used my mom as the example, but if she was trying to build any muscle whatsoever as frail, like seven year old, uh, we're just going to do a bunch of stuff that you can like easy, like bam, pull aparts, face balls, just throw shit at the wall. The volume will be the vehicle for something developing. 
And that's very effective for a very long period of time, longer than people want to give it credit for. Like look at your favorite bodybuilders of any era, probably doing an ungodly amount of volume at some stage. But for most people, most of the time, a more effective thing, and this is where it's, it's an in, inflection point where doing less volume as your quality of effort goes up is probably the better route to take. And that's the thing that people uh, have strong misconceptions about because they don't know necessarily how to pair what the literature would inform with the experience in the field and where you can kind of tease out what the best option is for the best person. So once you get past this plateau of development where you're just going to throw as much volume, progressive volume, week over week, month over month, year over year at the person, volume being sets times reps times weight. So added load helps with that as well in the long term. You kind of actually need to peel back and you start to look at how effective is your recovery because as you get stronger, as you get more developed, as your effectiveness of your workouts goes up, you need less of it because you're starting to train yourself into a hole and you can't see progressive gains if your body's getting so torched by your actual workout that it needs to allocate more of those recovery-based resources just building you back up, up to baseline before it can see any kind of the small squeaking net forward progress because as you get better and better as well, anabolic resistance is a thing both in terms of aging populations but in terms of experienced populations the amount of, of tissue accretion you'll get from any series of programming slowly goes down it's harder and harder to make more muscle grow as you get more experienced so the inflection point of maybe pull back volume especially the stuff that's like not the greatest like redundant volume or just garbage technique and really focus on hammering the stuff that is super effective but in that, that phone booth of effective volume, that's the thing that is the greatest trend that I see that will really help a lot of people. And something that even in my own experience, where I don't have the highest quality, I'll still, hey, like three, three sets, a couple exercises per muscle group, and then get out of the gym because I don't have the highest quality and my body kind of needs that, that ramp up to get it to the point where the final sets are really effective because of pre-fatigue. It's not the greatest for net forward progress in a vacuum, how hypertrophy works, but it's re it's responsible for my maintenance and my progress at that period of time. Whereas when I'm tuned in, I've got my sleep, I'm stimmed up, I got my pre-workout, it's like two sets, two, two really hard sets, genuinely close to failure, and we're cool. That's it. That's all I really need. And even saying two sets, if you're not in the current popular like top set, down set crew, People are used to three to four sets and two to three exercises per muscle group, right? right? So that's the thing. At a certain point in time, like if you're actually is, uh, you start feeling like garbage, as far as I understand from my experience, like comparatively so. Uh, and usually it's like once you've escaped being like a 20-year-old gym bro that has next to no responsibilities, like when you're allostatic load, so stress from all sources, not just training, gets to a certain level and you have to actually manage it uh you have a job you have life responsibilities maybe you have a family and training you get to the point where it's highlighted it was always there like finding that sweet spot of training volume versus recovery is always there but you have a much more narrow band of where you should be operating within when your allostatic load gets like just torched by all different st uh, stressors so you got your newbie gains you got your your 18 year olds that are on the tail end of puberty that are just fired the fuck up and ready to go. Yeah, get to your mid 20s, start to get to your 30s, start to have some actual anabolic resistance from actually training for a while. Then you'll start to realize how effective your training should become to start seeing not you feeling like garbage and just maintaining and actually see some more forward progress and also not feel like garbage. 
So are you uh are you having people like rate their I like biometric feedback or is it like so like you know maybe some people don't they've maybe felt like garbage for a while and that's now their new homeostatic what is normal for them right like they're like this is just age right how would they be able to distinguish that from like oh what is actually me performing at a high level or like maybe they've been at that point for a while they've been in the fire um how would they know and be able to move in or out of that should they just try dropping the volume a little bit going a little bit harder um on two sets or how do they know that's the it's hilarious because you just described basically me and actually two of my clients too actually just popped into mind. Like, how do you know you feel like trash if you've always felt like trash? Um, I like the idea of like one of them is uh, uh, I trained a guy named Muscle Bill and he's got some pretty pretty crazy health implications. So we keep his his training volume as effective as possible. I don't want to give him anything else that he needs to recover from, and he's currently. Uh, gearing up for a pretty important presentation for him it's a it's a fundraiser for sick kids out in ontario and it's just it's it's a big meaningful experience for him so his allostatic load is through the roof and he already has like a, a baseline level of recoverability that we're trying to operate within so for him literally just getting to the gym like two days a week for the next week or so that's like rough and i was like yo man just do one hard set per exercise just to retain the movement patterns and just feel like you're moving around and feeling good and we're cool something like that he's already got the buy-in because we were used to doing like two sets of eight rpe nine with three minutes of rest like the most optimized potential parameters for him to minimize uh his stressors he's already bought in on that so it's a little bit easier of a move but another one of my guys out in australia he is uh he works uh he, as a farmer so it's very physical and also long hours it's also winter and his training is barbell based in a barn for lack of a better phrase and it's it like balls early in the morning it's like four in the morning right so his allostatic load and his recovery is through the floor and it, it, he literally told me like he's getting run down it's usually going to be as we start uh talked about earlier in the conversation that mental staleness really starts to manifest because the physical performance kind of can linger for a while but your warning shots are going to be sleep disturbances as well as like your mood and mood can be like just moodiness but also just staleness on exercise so those are pretty big warning signs and at that stage once they start being like kind of burnt on the whole prospect of training it's a lot easier buying to be like hey change some shit let's pull (laughs) i have an idea but in order to actually accomplish that um that's when I take people off the chain at least the perception is and it's like send it like RP10 here we're going to do two sets and that's actually for people that haven't uh, sort of strategized this before minimizing the sets delivering the intent of hey you may be used to two to three exercises per muscle group three to four sets per exercise I'm giving you one or two exercises per muscle group and you get three sets do you not dog this right do you have people though that are like when they hear that, they're like, is that going to be enough volume? Because they watch Dr. Mike Isretel and they see that, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume. And they're like, I need at least 10 sets per muscle group per week, but, you know, upward to 20 and I need to be somewhere in here and you're like two sets. Yeah, that's the fun part of the conversation because that goes from generalizable literature 
from averages found in like, don't get me wrong, they're from like meta-analysis. So the pool data is getting better and better, but they're still averages and they're still based upon the average human and not uh, the archetype or the, the case study rather is the better word for it, the case study being presented in front of you. So the target of, okay, for best muscle growth, because you're right, you cited the 10 hard sets per week per muscle group is a great baseline. Maybe get up to like even 20 sometimes is really effective for people. That's in a vacuum. Now let's target the person sitting right in front of me like, hey man, you know what's easier to maintain than to grow? Muscle mass. So no matter what we do, we're probably going to at least maintain it. So you're not going to see that go away, but let's try this out. Let's do this. And it's like most people, most of the time, they'll train a muscle group more than once a week. So if I give them like two hard sets per exercise, maybe one to two exercises per uh, muscle group, add in like if they're a synergist, if you got a comp end in there, something like that, they'll probably still hit that 10 baseline. Uh, but it's more so like I was getting to like, it encourages them not to sandbag because right. most people, when you give them more things, inherently they sandbag, whether they're doing it yeah, consciously because like, oh God, my workout's so long or subconsciously just because you know, you have so much going on or whatever. I've been guilty of it. And the second you're like, okay, I got two sets to failure. Calling it, calling it to failure is kind of a formality because like most people, even myself won't train to true failure. We'll train pretty close, but not truly, but you start pulling away that volume and ask them for videos or something. And just the watcher effect and the minimal amount of volume they actually get really helps to boost the intensity. And that's the thing that they really need. Fair. Are there, um, are there any things like outside of, you know, training and normal nutrition and sleep? that you would advise um, people to do or to take? Like if there was like, oh, like supplements, are you you taking anything there? Like, is there anything that you would recommend? That's assuming everything is in line. They're like getting the appropriate amount of sleep. They're eating enough calories. They're getting enough protein. They're training hard. Yeah, like the, the lowest hanging one for supplements, just creatine, because like just... It's the goat. It's like for, for muscular development, it's pretty much the most, to be as cliche sounding as possible, it's the most studied and proven effective supplement out there. Just do the thing. Uh, but it's bad. It's, they're finding benefits for so many different things across your body. So you just supplement it. It's fine. It's relatively cheap and lasts a long time. So go for it. But aside from that, from a more practical standpoint, I actually really like for me and for a lot of people that are learning how to skillfully execute a lot of exercises. Stim or non-stim doesn't really matter to me, but some pump-based pre-workout mm. uh, or timing of nutrition, like carbs and like like making sure your electrolytes are are good and your hydration is good pre-workout, because catching a pump as part of like a warm-up protocol or warm-up set leading into like the harder sets really helps with kinesthetic awareness, um, the mind-muscle connection, if you would, uh, making sure that you're basically in the best possible position to actually target the tissue, having a pump, having like uh, pre-workout to me is almost one of my mandatories. If I'm actually, if I know I can really send the intensity just because even at my level, I'm like, yeah, I'd probably be more mindful of my body positioning if I felt like there was a lot of blood in that area. So that's like a, uh, maybe a practical one. It's again, none of them are mandatory. Like it doesn't be just because you took a pre-workout aside from maybe you trying harder because you're stimmed up or you have a pump. It doesn't magically just grow muscle. So creatine is the same boat as that. It just helps you maybe squeak out another rep or two across the entirety of a workout. Like it's it's there, but it's like nothing is truly mandatory. Right. 
um, in terms of type of carbohydrate, if they were going to take one like before a workout, uh, like I've done, like, have you used like glycerol? I have not. Uh, that's even, that's too advanced for me, bro. I just, I just can't, I can't with that. No, it's primarily just, uh, making sure you're like, you're fed beforehand. Um, and if you have a long day, like depending on when you train, like even just a, a balanced breakfast is probably enough to make sure you're, you're good to go. It's not like you carb deplete super duper hard overnight, really all that crazily from the, at least the muscle, muscle perspective. Um, uh, so was, if you have a, a good breakfast, uh, hour or two ahead of time, you're probably fine. If it's a longer day, like trying to time like some fruit or something like that a little bit out just to like sort of refresh things. Cause that was something uh that became on our seminar circuits. That was like the the go during the lunch break, just hit a gas station, make sure we grab like so uh, like a Gatorade and like insert your favorite like high sugar thing, like small little snack or whatever. Cause we're standing, we're talking, we're demoing all day, like and our food's kind of iffy because we're like traveling. Just as we finish, because we've got an Uber or we've got to drive where we're going to go, hit some Gatorade, hit the, hit the sugar, and then your workout's fine. Nice. Um, and one thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, just because we had like a a brief little conversation about it, um, was uh, BFR. Uh, is it useful? Who would it be useful for? Um, and what it is. So BFR is blood flow restricted exercise. Restricted is probably the key thing here for a lot of people that are sort of dabbling in it because a lot of people will overkill it and they'll fully occlude. So restriction means blood flow can still enter, but it's being impeded from leaving. Whereas full occlusion is nothing in, nothing out. And that's not great at all. So what you would do, there is first aid tourniquets that you can find on Amazon or really anywhere, but they would go, it's usually around the deltoid tuberosity is where you attach high armpit ish region or right below the gluteal fold. And you can use like for the legs, you'd want to use like elastic or nylon, uh, knee wraps, just to use them, just repurpose them. A snugness of probably about seven out of 10 in terms of like, this feels way too tight versus right in the sweet spot. Seven out of 10 tightness is usually enough to restrict, but not occlude. And then it's just a method of intensification. So in the course we go over my preferred ways of thinking of like training parameters being either you're pursuing meaningful muscular tension through either load induced means or accumulation induced means load induced means you're using more weight to get to failure faster, usually six to eight to 10 reps. Whereas accumulation induced means you're trying to accumulate metabolic stress, uh, which is probably something more people resonate with than accumulation, but usually you're reaching about failure within 10, 12, maybe 15 repetitions because the metabolic stress, the metabolic accumulation makes it harder and harder for the muscle fibers to actually contract. As they start to fall off, because the cellular environment is just garbage for contraction, more and more motor units are recruited because they just, out of necessity, are being told to keep working. Blood flow restriction speeds the process with which you'll see metabolic accumulation because fresh blood is continuously able to enter because you're restricting, not occluding, but it's being restricted in leaving. And because the blood is being restricted in leaving, all of that metabolic byproduct of exercise, like each contraction kicking off more and more lactate or lactic acid, whichever phrase you prefer, anything else that may be associated as a metabolic byproduct, more of that is just staying within that active tissue because it's being restricted through the blood not being able to leave. So you do like moderate repetitions to high repetition sets with low load just to accumulate the biggest shotgun swell of, of metabolites as, as you possibly can. Most of the protocols are like a set of 30 reps followed by three sets of 15 with about 30 seconds of rest in between each. 
but it's loaded like 20 to 35% of your 1RM if you even know what it is. It's very, very light, relatively speaking. But you get a huge swell of potential tension because there's such a massive amount of metabolic accumulation that it forces higher and higher threshold motor units to be called into effect the same way that would happen if you just used higher weights. Who is this useful for? Anybody that wants to make gains, it's useful for. But it's kind of strategic, in my opinion, and by virtue of what uh, a lot of fatigue mechanisms may suggest as well. And it's not going to kill you if you use blood flow restriction. It's not going to tank you forever. But probably if you're trying to most strategically use it, I view it like a uh, drop set. How we spoke earlier about if you just spike it in your training, it's very hard to qualify or quantify the impact that it will have and to program for it. It's even worse for blood flow restriction because no adaptation happens in a vacuum. Your main adaptation of choice in hypertrophy training is muscle growth. But when you start to do some crazy amount of metabolic accumulation, you're probably going to start seeing metabolic adaptations. You're going to start seeing your body become more resilient to accumulation of metabolic fatigue. That's great. Uh, it also makes it harder and harder for you to actually get the same impact of blood flow restriction because you're becoming more resilient to blood flow restricted settings. So either the load has to go up, which makes it a redundant mod modality because just take them off and use higher weight, uh, or something else has to change. So it's strategic. Maybe it's a spike at the end of a program, like we talked about with the all intensifiers, or it's really, really good if you have an injury or if you're super frail and have a very, very, very low baseline, obviously be cleared for exercise and be cleared for any sort of manipulation of blood. Basically don't have any heart issues. Um, it's safe, but don't be an idiot if someone has that. Uh, or if you have minimal load, like if you just are in an environment where you don't have a heavy weight to actually use, blood flow restriction is a great in case of emergency break glass sort of tool. But the biggest one probably for most people is when you're dealing with a muscle strain, a joint issue, stuff like that, it lowers the load such that the joint or the injured area is probably pretty protected, but you can still target the muscle tissue with a meaningful stimulus without having to go overload with weight. That makes sense? Absolutely. Eric, this has been so fun. Um, I want I want to like give my guests the opportunity or my audience the opportunity to see um, more content from you. Where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, I pretty much live exclusively on Instagram in terms of social media. Um, at Eric Baguera, E-R-I-C-B-U-G-E-R-A is where you'll find uh, my socials. Pretty much what you can expect is sound bites because that's my content production is just whenever I'm on a podcast, I'll just dice up because I say some stupid shit and then it's better for social media for me to do that than try to like curate it myself. Uh, but I also write a lot and it's a very good way for me to sort of organize my thoughts and kind of give perspective for people in ways that they can think. So think you'll see probably a mishmash of written content and uh, audio sound bites, but that's primarily in where you'll find it. I'm very, very responsive if people want to reach out, talk shop on anything we talked about or just have further questions as well. So shoot the DMs. Awesome, Eric. Thank you so much. Right on, man.